You are now tuned in to the December 26th podcast, where we encourage you to be extraordinary on an ordinary day. What's up, 26er family? Welcome to another episode of the December 26er podcast. I am your host, Delisha, and this episode features Lawrence Aja. Lawrence is a community builder, host, and founder and chairman of Family Dinner Foundation, a global movement whose mission is to connect the world as a family at and beyond the dinner table. Lawrence was born in Brooklyn and raised in Piscataway, New Jersey. He entered Harvard University as a high school All-American and the reigning national pentathlon champion in track and field. He had dreams of competing in the 2004 Olympics, but life had other plans. After a career curtailing injury, those dreams were dashed, but the disappointment and loneliness that followed helped him see what was missing in his life, a connection with others. Lawrence's education and career initially took him on a more traditional path, He began his professional journey as a management consultant for one of the big three firms and later worked at a premier sport and entertainment marketing agency before eventually launching his own consulting firm. But while advancing his professional goals, Lawrence didn't lose sight of the importance of connection. He noticed that while we all were becoming more and more digitally connected, we were also more isolated than ever before. And he made it his mission to address this issue. Now, like many of our interviews since we've been stuck at home, Lawrence and I had an extended conversation, so we've split it into two parts. This week's episode lays the foundation and focuses heavily on his origin story, but we also begin to touch on his work manifesting his vision for an uncommon community that operates like a family and how that has evolved to a call to ministry. So without further ado, please enjoy. Lawrence, welcome to the December 26th podcast. How are you? Delisha, grateful to be here. Um, I'm, I'm grateful to be seen, grateful to be with. Thank you so much for having me. We are excited about this one as we were chatting before we got started with Demarcus. We feel like this is going to be something special. Just based, you came highly recommended. Let me start there. Okay. <laughs> um, Tacoa, shout out to Tacoa Hash, former guest shout of the show, longtime friend. Out. I know we share a, a mutual love for her. Um, mm-hmm. She was the most passionate about... <laughs> Preferring you as a guest and wanted to know uh, when this was happening. So I know when she is that excited about something, like it's about to be real. So shout out to mm. her and just, you know, she's so supportive and has been a, of my career for a very long time. So mm. I'm glad we got this on the calendar. Uh, thank you. Tacoa is an angel. So clearly that's angel duties. I did not do anything. <laughs> I did not earn that. Uh, she's going on her own wings with that one. So thankful for her. Awesome. So let's get into it. Who is Lawrence Aja? Hmm. Lawrence Aja is the son of Lawrence and Cornelia Aja, both Nigerian immigrants that came over to the States in the late 70s uh, from to Brooklyn, Flatbush, Brooklyn, where everybody seems to have gone in. And then from Flatbush, Brooklyn to Piscataway, New Jersey. Shout out to the Jersey heads here. Um, and for me, who am I? I'm, I'm someone who um, I think I, I grew up with pretty high aspirations for the world. Um, um, I think coming up, there was a disposition towards the world because I think my, my dad, he was orphaned when he was 11 um, in the Nigerian Civil War, had both of his parents uh, murdered, unfortunately, and he was he had 10 other siblings to care for. And so when he came here, his, my mom and his children were all he had. Um, but ultimately, you know, when you kind of survive that, and it could have been him if he would have went back home, like his mom told him to come back home and he felt he shouldn't go back home. There's a sense that you were still here for something greater. And I think in one sense, we grew up with this view of community because my dad was around it. My, my paternal grandfather was a community organizer, so to speak, a political strategist um, in the village in the area of Calaba, Nigeria. And so there was almost like a, a push against politics, but just a view towards community. We weren't just about ourselves. We were about our neighborhood. So even in Piscataway, when we moved there, um, my parents really made that a community. Um, you know, our door was open. We cooked food. People came through. We knew everybody's name. We knew their stories. My dad took time, get up in the morning, talk to the neighbors. So I came up in that. I came up in an other minded context that believed in the power of hospitality, that believed that your presence, uh, you're responsible for other people, that we have a call to the world, that my dad felt he survived, uh, that his children had a call to do something um, important. And uh, I think that has kind of formed me. Uh, my view, I've always had a world-centric view of, I think I'm here for more. I want to make sure I'm doing something to actually serve and care for people. Um, 
I think one of the ways that I, I, I think I've cared for people um, and I was called like, it's like the Mr. Rogers complex, <laughs> which is my dad. I used to be so upset, you know, kids, you know, it was like, well, like your mom going to the, uh, the checkout and she's like, oh, she always got to fight about this coupon, right? Like, you know, my dad, <laughs> everybody know that you're like, oh, she's going to her pocketbook, right? Like my mom, my, my, my dad was, everybody knew him because he always stopped for people on the train, the New Jersey transfer, Northeast Corded Edison. And so I think I, I, I think I, that spirit has always been in me that I always felt connected to people more connected people than they felt to me. I always felt like that's my sister. And people didn't, I always felt like I was trying to like, that, you know, I feel like that's my brother's sister. I was very sensitive to division, right? You know, like I was very sensitive to, why can't we bring people together? That was always me. I was always involved. And from high school, you know, I thought my first career was going to be track and field, got injured, didn't represent Nigeria, but everybody got that old school. I, I go to be the barbershop talk like, I, you, I was going to be somebody, right? Uh, <laughs> you know, everybody was, was, was the best at that time. But um, you know, that was my first career. And when that didn't work out, you know, I, I, I just had this sensitivity to, I want to do things that bring people together. Sport was an outpouring of that, right? Coming from that, my dad brought, our family brought community together. We brought neighbors and strangers together. My dad knew neighbors, they knew each other, they connected. But then I kind of view sports as one of those unique things that brought people together. So when my career ended, went into a career um, that was advising some of the top sports organizations that we know, bringing that, but something still was missing, right? You know, both my parents are entrepreneurs. Um, you know, my dad was very big on time and family. And so, um, you know, I think out of this love of stranger was just this sense of family and connection because he didn't take it for granted. My mom didn't take it for granted, losing her father when she came over. She was just like, hey, family's all we have. And so I always felt sensitive to like, man, I, I think we feel more divided because when I leave my neighborhood and how my dad talk about relationships with people, now that I'm getting older, I'm seeing how people move <laughs> and it just seems so individual. It seems so separate. And so I, I, I don't know. I think the, the headline I would give is that I am someone who's very, been very sensitive to relationship, um, uh, people being together, a responsibility to our people, seeing people as brother and sister, even before I knew them, that was cultivated in me. And I think that I ultimately was fortunate to grow up in a time and, um, you know, uh, I guess, have a career in a time when that was shifting for the world. Um, and so I, I, I could pause there, but I can keep going a bit on no, um, what that meant. Let's pause there um, and really focusing on your upbringing. I think it's, it's one thing to, for a parent to have an approach to the community at large and how they raise their family based on their experiences. It's another thing to disclose those experiences to their children and explain why they feel that way. So how old were you? when your parents really explained to you sort of their, their origin story um, and that their journey prior to bringing you into the world? Mm. I actually remember the first time my dad really broke down. I think um, it was actually a soccer game. You know, I played soccer, uh, you know, and we used to do traveling on the weekends. And I remember I had a really good game and um, we we're driving back. I think we're going there. We're about to stop by Intimates or something. I think we'd like those donuts. <laughs> Somebody gets to stuff. First of all, that's Wild Jersey. But anyway. yeah, you're, you're, you know what I'm saying? I'm like, I, I just I threw that I threw that to you, Delisha. That was for you. That was for bail for you. Um, <laughs> so you knew that. Um, but we literally came from Intimates. I was about to tear this thing up, and I remember us at a traffic light. And my dad, I I never saw my dad emotional in that way. My dad was emotionally healthy, meaning that he told me he loved me. He told, but like I saw a tear going out his eye. And I'm looking at him, I'm like, what, you know, what's going on? And he's just like, I wish your, your grandmother would be here to see this. And, you know, I remember then like asking and, and uh, a little bit later we got home about the story. And I think I was like seven or something like that. And he talked about the fact that he wasn't supposed to be here because his, I think my, but the, he was the oldest mm -hmm. and my maternal, my paternal grandmother was a professor. Um, and uh, typically in those in the, the villages, Nigeria, you would bring your oldest daughter to the, the market the village. So, but he, he she brought him because he was the oldest. So that's where he learned how to cook, and he passed on to me. Did all, but then, um, but he was so close to her. She would always be really clear about like how to how to operate around family members, this that that. Because again, political children, you got to just can't eat at everybody's house, all that stuff. But he felt he remember that day when he was just like, man, she was calling me back. To come back to the house and something told him not to go and then he remember like hearing you know uh, you know you know kind of essentially feel what he felt was like hearing you know 
her life being taken and the father's been life being taken and essentially being being split amongst family members right um with his siblings but he most of them stayed with where he was and having to kind of you know survive from there and so that kind of hit me it was just one it gave me context around why my dad growing up he was i don't like politics <clears throat> it was very much like we don't like politics right <laughs> you know um but two it ultimately gave me some deep empathy around why my dad was the way he was, why he was so expressive. Like he was, a, I call him, like he was a man's man, meaning he had the, the muscles out, you know, like he was very menacing. He had those tint glasses, you know, those people, <laughs> y'all know them Knight Rider glasses, man? <laughs> you, know you know, he had them tint glasses, they scare me, you know, like, <laughs> you know, um, but he ultimately would never went without leaving a present where he said, he didn't say, I love you. Um, never, never not was, uh, expressive of loving my mom. And I, when you realize when you've lost everything, you could see that quickly, it could have been you. And then you were orphaned and you're not supposed to be here. It just cultivated, I think what I call like this duality, which I kind of saw. And I just had a conversation about like just manhood and what I see it as. And I think it's like, it's all encompassing. Like, like God grieved, he felt things, right. That, that, that's encompassing. My dad was, I think a man's man. He was very firm, he was very clear, he was very decisive, he was very assertive, but he also was very clear about how he felt. And I think um, he brought me into that after that moment in the car where I remember seeing that and he just invited me in, uh, one, seeing him cry like that. But two, I even out of that, he ultimately gave me a value for how you saw family and entrepreneurship. And so I remember um, in, on the way home, before he shared me that story, you know, he says, you know, I didn't, I didn't start a business. He's an architect. He's like, I didn't start a business just that I say I have a business. He's like, I just wanted, I wanted to start this business because I wanted someone to never tell me what to do with my time. So when I want to go and see your soccer game, I can go see your soccer game because it matters to me. So I'm willing to sacrifice so that I could spend time with my family. So again, seeing those links. So then, then that added another layer. One, the value of family underscoring it every more with us having dinners. And we'll talk a little bit more about that later, but you know, but it was all, also a view of like, it was about time, relationship and sacrifice. And the fact that he said, I got into business, not to make a name for myself, but so that I could be in a position I'll suffer so that I could see your game because that matters so much to me because of what I lost. My, my innocence was taken from me in many ways. I had to grow up. And so I just, I want to be able to be present with my children. And so this view of family was huge. This view of entrepreneurship around freedom you know, was, was huge. It was a lot of those things that I think, you know, helped to shape me a bit based on that conversation. What I find fascinating about this is how trauma and, and crises drive people in different ways, right? Because there are people who could talk about the experience that their parents had, um, both in immigrant families or folks who were born here, but the result of what they witnessed, what they experienced, made for a very dysfunctional household because they were not emotionally healthy. There were unresolved PTSD issues, unresolved grief, all those things. So to hear how your dad really approached life because of these experiences, what do you think? kept him so grounded and emotionally healthy despite having experienced all of that. Hmm. Yeah. And, and I always caveat this because I imagine, you know, like it doesn't mean that he was perfect. Right. right I think course. people think like people think, um, I think that I, I, I know I, I always find this, especially even the role of, of being with people and helping to steward people both in um, marriage, but also in funerals and transitions. There's something to be said about when you get near death and how people think about life. And I think that when that affects you so closely, you have to reevaluate life. You have to like, you know, what do I do? And I think at such a young age, he had to grow up so quickly. I think he was so intentional and self-aware about what's important. And he was like, I don't have my parents. I want my kids to have their parents. Um, I am going to go to this new country. I remember even talking about even me and my mom. Like, my, I saw them pictures back in the day. I'm like, oh, I see what you're doing, Dad. Like, you know what I mean? Like, <laughs> um, but there was also part of it where he said like. I knew I needed to be married, come into this country. I needed destruction. There was like self-awareness because he wasn't on the back. He was just like, I would have been out here running around. He's like, I have a goal. I, uh, you know, like I'm not supposed to be here. So I just want to make the most of my life. So I think coming so close to, it could have been him dying with my paternal grandmother. 
right? The fact is he had to grow up and be responsible for someone. The fact is he then met someone that he wanted to share his life and have a life with. I think what kept him grounded is the fact that he just wanted to be there for us in ways that he never received. He didn't get that. His parents were gone. And so I think it's like, again, for many people, when they don't get that experience, they're like, I want to give that experience to my children. I think it was that universal desire to say, I didn't have this. You won't get to meet, like I was crying, you won't get to meet my, my mother, your grandmother. But I want to be able to let you know. And I think there's some part of it, even some, some level of just even fragility of life. I think there's also a view that he says, like, I'm recognizing that he could go. And so I, while I'm here, I'm going to keep the, I'm going to deposit. I'm going to, I'm going to say, uh, I'm going to communicate. So you never question it. Because I think one of the things my sisters and I have three sisters and we sometimes joke because my dad, like he throw down and I'm like, I'm thankful for that. Cause I throw down real nasty, all that, but no ashy, ashy heels. You know, people grill the ashy heel brothers uh, with the uncle sandals, but that's a conversation. Um, but he, but we would talk about how, you know, how you, like, you fish for affirmation. And like, it's kind of like, so, so how was it? How was the turkey? You know, I fried it. How was it? How was it? You know, like, that's my dad, you know? And let's be laughing. We're like, oh, but he always, you know, but we realized it was like, that was that part of him that he didn't receive. You're good job. Mm-hmm. Older. You did good job. When you, you take forever for granted when you're an, you're an adult, if you have that parental interaction, I'm not saying it's healthy for everybody, but you know, we all want to look and hear well done. And so that now as we're older, we have grown, matured emotionally, spiritually, we could see our father, see our father and our mother as children <laughs> for mm-hmm. someone and be like, oh, wow, that's why he wants that. Well, but because part of it is the trauma. Part of it is the I didn't have I didn't get affirmed like that. My dad was on the road doing all this organizing. My mom was working. She was just trying to prepare me for whatever. And I lost them. So then all of my affirmation, I had to just have it myself. Nobody was out there saying good job. And so now I kind of communicate that. And so it kind of brought some empathy. So I think grounds is the reality that he may not be here um that you know so many people lost young and so i think he was depositing early i think to the the view of like just what hmm, i think he just generally felt that i think his cup overrunneth to say uh, the fact that i'm here i'm fortunate to have a wife i'm have, have these kids i just lord thank you so i'm gonna keep saying i love you i love you i love you i love you um and i think some other part of it i don't know um I don't know. I think just grace of God, how he could be centered because it wasn't, it was, like I said, it wasn't perfect. But isn't it like amazing? We've talked about it on this show, having that experience where you realize your parents are human. Like with their <laughs> own vulnerabilities and deficiencies and need for positive reinforcement or what have you and their own stories that have formed who they mm-hmm. are. Right. And, and I think mm-hmm. when that happens, that's a shift in the parent child relationship. Um, because I think most people think, oh, okay, parent-child relationship shift when you leave home for college, when you become an adult or when you, and that all happens, but there's also that moment of revelation where you can see your parent as somebody's child, <laughs> who has their own story and the things that they've been through and their own hurts and, and all of that, which may inform how they see the world and how they see you and how they interface with you as their child as well. That mm. Having that experience is in my mind, relationship altering, you know, <laughs> particularly, particularly in, in black households, because, you know, we sort of grow up, do, you know, do as I say, do what you're told, be respectful, children are seen and not heard, you know, all of these things. Um, so you, you see your parents as not friends. <laughs> but, <laughs> you know, they, they rule the roost. That, that's it. But then getting to that point where not that their vulnerability has not been on display before, as you mentioned and recounted in that story of coming back from soccer tournament, but just if something about that, uh, that dynamic as an adult, when that veil is pushed back to their own um, idiosyncrasies and scars and, and everything else. And I think mm-hmm. it can bring uh, parents and children closer as well, if you, if you approach it with the right level of grace. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I I definitely have appreciated that, right? I, when people say like, "Oh, my parent, my friend," I'm like, "Yo, this ain't like a house." I'm calling them like, "Hey, Joe, like this not this not the Jacksons," you know what I'm saying? Like, you know what I'm saying? That, that is not we do not do that here, fam. Um, um, but it does, you know. I I and and the reality is, I think we like I said, there's no relationship that's perfect. All the greatest relationships run on grace. So there've been seasons, right? I'm pretty sure people even in this season you know, with COVID and having the COVID frustration conversations, like stay in the house, right? Like, right. you know, <laughs> you know, like, the, you know, where you transition to caring for parents, 
But there's also a part of it which makes you relate. Like uh, one one thing that I realized the most, especially in events, and this is committing my life to, you know, an uncommon community, ensuring that everybody has relationships like family. Everyone's accounted for, like in God's family. I think there is something about how much my parents did with what they had that sort of blows me away. I'm like, I remember like, I'm like, our weekends were packed. They were full-time jobs. They were packed. On top of that, holidays, they're on the phone half the day cooking, but they're on the phone. You know how hard it is sometimes these days to get people to call people? Right. To call people, to actually get up. They say they're going to go somewhere. They go and show up. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? You know, it's not like, oh, no, nah, I'm going to take this nap. I ain't, I ain't coming, dog. I'm sorry. No laughing. It, they were commitment-based. And I think it, one, just gave me an appreciation like, oh, I love you. Like, wow. Like, my goodness. But ultimately, it also just took a level of distress. I said, yo, what type of, co-? like, I'm not saying that things are di- they're different. Our nature, uh, I, again, I, I, apples and oranges is a different time. But I just think about the stuff that they were carrying. And it gives me empathy when I think of over time what that may have caused, mm-hmm. right? The financial pressures that were going on. You have four kids, right? You know, and you need to provide, right? And you need to pay tuition, right? Um, and you guys are trying to figure out, and my parents were really young. And so you're trying to figure out your life, right? You know, you don't want to look at it and be like, oh, no, you're overwhelmed. Like, they were 23, right? Like, but they were young. And so now seeing that, like, I, I think a lot of times the thinking when you grow up, you think that your parents, use wisdom, but some things you're like, I wouldn't do this. I wouldn't do this. I feel actually as I got older, because of my wisdom, I actually have more compassion for the decisions that they made, right? I get it. I see so much wisdom in how they did things that I didn't agree with right now that I'm an adult, um, I'm more so of an adult. Um, but yeah, I, I think it has brought us together, the conversation my dad and I have you know, in, in, in so many aspects about family, love, some difficulties for me and my entrepreneurship and the pain, you know, almost losing my dad because he was working so much because of stress. Right. Um, and so, I, you know, I, I will say that because I, you know, one thing when I talk to brothers on the phone, I catch up with my boys. I, we always I always ask about stress when I talk to sisters that we're close to and we have that, especially if they're, we're over they're over 35. I ask them about that. How, what they have when they had their last blessed exam? Like that is it. Like that's literally the conversation. But guys, stress because I've lost too many brothers already past how many years because they internalize it, right? Um, and so I, I think me being able to talk to my dad about that, and now I get it. Now I get why my dad took some sometimes took those walks. Now I get why my dad when we came in, he's like he didn't want to talk on the phone. He was just I've been all day. He sat in the room where sometimes I'd, I'd see them arguing, and my dad would be silent somewhere. And like you get older and now you recognize like that was wise, (laughs) you know, like like my dad's self-control. And so then like we'd be like video games, like why my dad say something, right? Like, you know, like we were, I I have so much of it because I now relate as a man, like, oh, that's what he was, oh, that's what was going on. Absolutely. You know, I, uh, I think when I think about my story and not just my, my mom and her relationship with my dad and the good, the bad and the ugly there, but also my grandparents. and I, I think about all that they all invested in me, right? Mm-hmm. And to your point about, so we, it struck a chord with me when you said like tuition, right? <laughs> and I think like, it would have been so easy for my mom to say, you going to public school? Like, I'm not, I don't have the money to pay for X, Y, and Z. I don't, I can't be running you to all these extracurriculars. Um, but for her to do the exact opposite, like find a way out of, no way to make sure that I was afforded, my brother was afforded every opportunity possible, right? And even looking at my grandparents, elementary school education, like they don't, not even like having had that experience, but like, okay, well, we got to pick her up from here. We got to take her here. What can we do to help? Um, And how that, those decisions and sacrifices and having the foresight to say, this is not easy. The money mm-hmm. is tight. The time is tight. We're going to give our, our kids and our grandkids the best opportunity possible and to look at where my life has ended up as a result. And I don't know if you have this experience where people look at your degrees and they, they look at all the stuff that you've done. and They just automatically assume that you came from money. Right. Like a lot of money, wealth or, you know, your trust fund kid or whatever. Um, just assuming that. But when you think about what your parents invested to groom you for people to even have that assumption. Um, 
it makes me emotional. Like just, I think, and, and having gratitude for having that experience for all the, mm. the, the ways that you grew up in there may have been lack or things that you saw um, that may not have been so great. Just mm. knowing that, you know, to have people who would fight tooth and nail for you to live the life you live today um, is amazing. So that, that resonated with me for sure. Mm. Um, mm. So, but, but going back to your, to your journey, um, interesting that you were an athlete, but also your Harvard grad, mm. you know, your bachelor's degree is from Harvard. So you, you mentioned being community minded, but thinking, you know, about this athletic piece as well. So what drove you to decide, like, I'm going, I'm going to Harvard, I'm going here. Yeah, you know, it was actually, you know, right before this, I, you know, spoke at um, Harvard's longest standing um, admissions officer, black admissions officer from Arkansas, David Evans, who's retiring. 6,000 black students came under his tenure um, by grace. Um, For me, I always knew I wanted to be an entrepreneur because of what I saw and because of like, I wanted the same freedom afforded for time. Now, when I say freedom, I think people who are entrepreneurs understand who operate it's not like we're not talking about lemonade and dance. And, you know, we, we're talking about, you know, I, 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 you kill what you eat and it gives me time. But there was a, a, another part of it, which is saying, I also know that's going to end. And I had a decision because in my view, you know, my goal was to go back and represent Nigeria. Because I think you have like a messed up, like, I think you're, you somehow feel like not at home identity wise. If you're sometimes a first generation immigrant child, you're like, I'm not really, you know, I don't really know enough history here. My parents can't teach me this. And then when I go, if I go home, people don't think I'm Nigerian enough. Um, and so I think that was my own way of trying to redeem to be like, I want to go back to my parents' country to the blood in my veins and go. And I was doing pretty well. Like it was national champion. It was kind of like, all right, you know, coming out of high school for you. So I was like, all right, I feel like this is not a moonshot. This is within reach and you have decisions. I think similar to you, which is I could go to another school where I don't have to pay, right? Um, and, and, but growing up, my parents did not, they said that they didn't, they were like, no, 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 no. We don't care. We don't care. We want you to go to the bed. That's all we came here. That's all we sacrificed. That's why your dad was sleeping in the office, right? Trying to make the, this is why, right? So, so in my mind, it was like a, a, a area of decision, which is like, I can go to these great track schools. Where I know my track career would, you know, like it's track, right? When it's a great school, I want to pay track. And then there was like, it was Harvard. And again, I just don't think it was in my cards. I got injured, right? Um, and so when I, I came there, I got injured. I didn't necessarily trust that um, I would be uh, groomed at the highest of levels. So I overdid it, which was a lesson, right? I never took time off after nationals. I kept training and like, I literally, my body broke down in the first season I got injured. Um, and, um, and so I think what kind of made the decision was this like, man, I remember when that admission off that, that, that letter came, I remember my mom opened it, of course. And, <laughs> you know, <laughs> I'm act- what you just said, exactly. Acting like she didn't, you know what I mean? Um, like breathing on the phone. We all know that. Um, like acting like she didn't. And, but seeing her face, it was almost like, like, thank you, Lord. Like all the sacrifices, we saw this in, in, in Flatbush. We saw this on Kane that our child would have this opportunity. And so for me, it was just the long, the long play. And I also knew, and this was also for better or for worse, I felt confident enough. And I think that was matured over time. It wasn't like an arrogance, but I felt like, I believe I'm smart. I believe I could learn anything. I believe if, if I wanted to come here to become valedictorian, I can. I had no doubt. But in my view was, I'm coming here for the, for the people. Like I could buy these books somewhere. And so I kind of viewed a long play of, even though the track and field didn't work out in, you know, in the sense that I got injured, had a medical redshirt and was able to finish my career afterwards after I graduated. Um, there was still a view that this is a longer play. And I made a sacrifice knowingly. And I have no regrets coming off of and being able to speak, um, you know, and being able to lead, you know, the, the, the Black alumni for how many years for Harvard and being able to be in that position and do that, being able to have conversations with people who, have, you know, who, who, who just who are doing such amazing things in the world. I just I'm thankful for that. My best friends came from from that from that dynamic. Right. Um, so many ways away. I think I always talk about my always my, my, my Malcolm X, my book, my Alex Haley, my uh, my my love for Martin Luther King, which is this big plaque in the back, which is uh, which is the you know, um, it's that came during my time at Harvard. It's because a brother who was from Baltimore, my brother Brandon Terry wrote, 
So, you know, I wrote about Martin Luther King and like I actually read about the real King and it changed my life. So I would say that to say like, yeah, you know, it was a decision initially that I felt was a knowing sacrifice, right, um, around my track career. But I think from an interpersonal standpoint to say, I think I'm supposed to be trained to do something for the world if I have this opportunity that my parents are saying, we're sacrificing for this. We don't have it. Go. You know, it just it, that made a decision for me. I just felt like I had to go and I wanted to go. So coming from the Ivy League world as, as well, I know that um, while it may not be impossible at other schools, it is much easier particularly being a diverse candidate from an Ivy in terms of companies recruiting you to do whatever, right? Doesn't, half the time, it doesn't matter what your major is. It's just the fact that you're coming from the school um, and they're throwing opportunities at you and a really supportive career services office and all these things. So having that experience of really the world being your oyster upon graduation, did you waver in your passion or, or dream to kind of move into the entrepreneurship space? I think I delayed it a bit, right? Mm-hmm. But I, I thought it was a knowing delay because, yeah. you know, I think that the view is that you want to build skills, right? Um, and to be honest, I want to be an entrepreneur, but I didn't know in what, <laughs> you know, because everybody said entrepreneurship and I'm kind of like, I, I don't know. And so I did these summers investment banking and I was kind of like, nah, fam, you know, like, <laughs> you know, I have to, you know, <laughs> you know. That BlackBerry red light was like it's like nightmare on Elm Street for me. Yeah, that, so, that boiler, <laughs> boiler room, the boiler room. Uh, Yo, fam, man. I'm like, I need these comments back. Let me live, right? Like, uh, <laughs> but you know, you know, getting opportunity to consult, I felt that was a, a great way for me to learn about a lot of things in travel. And so for me, it was just like, you know, I'm not sure yet, but at least this is going to give me a good skill set to help me advise, you know, help me to think and operate because I'll understand the strategy part and then I can get my hands dirty after I leave here from the support services side of the business to a more operating role. Um, so, so yeah, you know, it, 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 you know and, I, and I think ultimately it's, it's also still early enough in your career where you could still have like a path where it's like, I still have some buffer to kind of train and figure this out, um, you know, up front. And, this, and I also had a year just because I, I took a year to kind of, Finished my track career after my medical registration. I went down to Austin, Texas. Um, I competed for another year and then I came back. So I deferred my offer, came back to New York. But yeah, it was a um, it was helpful to have that time to travel, to think, to, you know, develop skills and also relationships with people. Um, but it gave me some time to think, like, what would I really want to do? And it still wasn't quite clear after I was done, you know, what I really wanted to do. Um, I just was clear that um, I got clear about lifestyle, which I think sometimes we take for granted around time, which is why so much in these times I talk about relationships and what type of life you're going to have. Because I said, you know, I remember in one case, there was a partner, we were doing a a project in Dallas, and his wife's a partner. I didn't know this. But we did know this when he came in the team room the next morning and said, wow, guess who I bumped into today? He said, what? My wife, she was in the lobby of the W. And I said, and people were laughing. Ha 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 ha. And in my mind, it automatically was like, nah, this ain't it. Because I said, (laughs) I'm like, wait, this is not a joke. Like, how are you? But the reality, I'm not saying that's all the case because I have some great relationships and great, but it was just like, this life is not sustainable for the one I want. Mm. So as much as it was about skills, it was also, it, it affirmed to me how much, you know, work and how intentional you have to be about that. I said, I don't want to live this way. I don't want to live this way. Even though I'm learning a lot, even though I've made great relationships, my life can't just be on this plane where I'm so disconnected from reality, where I can't even know where my wife is. Now, that's an extreme, but I saw too many. There's hard for me to see enough people. There are some people I look, enough people is managing director who I looked up to said, I, not that I want their advancements in the career, that I want their life. That's different, right? Um, you know, that we have all these lists, top this, top that. I'm like, I'm waiting for the, the, for the ebony list about people and they lie. <laughs> you know, you know, like, you know, and I, and I think that became clear to me from my experience, you know, investment banking, thankful for that. You know, my, my Excel game is strong because of that. But then going to consulting, getting to see the world, getting to work, getting to realize like, oh, I can't compete. I, I, I can do well at this, getting the offers, doing it. So I had that affirmation. But it was also like, I think I'm clear that this is not what I want. Um, and I think that, that that's helped me have enough courage, even with the scary uncertainty of, 
life, how life has been and some of the decisions I've made, it, it, it's helped me. Yeah, you know, I always chuckle with friends and colleagues who've been in a job that has required a lot of travel. Because like people think <laughs> it's so glamorous and they're like, you know, you're collecting all these miles, you're staying at these great hotels. I'm like, listen, until you've had to give up half your weekend because <laughs> you have to be somewhere for Monday morning, then you are, until you've had to race across town after your last meeting, sweating through the airport to try to make the last flight out to get home in some wrinkled suit by the end of it all to <laughs> the next day, please don't, don't tell me that this has got to be great to have to travel. You, you 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 know you know what it's completely and i think you know what we're kind of even getting to is just like man like like life mm-hmm. like i think like my dad started those seeds my family my experience by grace um and seeing people i just realized like life is really about relationships and how you design it around relationships like but they were so committed around relationships people and i'm realizing how much has our work culture has made us work around work and not work, work around us, like, um, in, 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 in many ways. And some of it's because of lifestyle that we want to have. So we, we justify it in our minds. Another part of it is just that it's just the way is that we're not anchored enough in, in relationships. And I'm putting myself in that, that take up too much space where we can't even play like that. Cause like I have commitments. I have, I have to see grandma at this time. I have to see mom at this. I have to go there. I don't have time. No five. I can't reply. You know, it's the other way around. Um, and it's unfortunate. It's not necessarily on us, but I think that really showed that to me. I said, no, I, I need to, I need to put a, put a ed, cut on this now. Mm-hmm. So you, if anybody looks at your resume, they'll be thoroughly impressed by the number of degrees that you have. Mm-hmm. So having gotten an MBA from Stanford, a couple of master's degrees, first and foremost, what was the journey in terms of when you decided to go for advanced education? But also, was it strategic with regard to your career choices or was it more so just this idea that like, I'm smart, I like to consume knowledge and this will help me in my acumen or at some future point in my journey? I would say it was strategic and responsive. So strategic in the sense that, you know, when I, I was heading business development at a sports and entertainment marketing agency after I left. Um, consulting from sometimes I don't even know if I can say stuff with these <laughs> laws. Trust but, me, I you understand. Know, you get it. We'll just say one it. of the um, big ones. So one of the, one of the big threes, right? And um, you know, part of it is like I was doing sports and entertainment there, and like we talked about, I said I want to be a better operator. I want to own a PNL. Still, sports said it was helpful. I went there, and then what was clear is that it was somewhat of a, I had a real reckoning. It was just like, what do I have to believe? Because I, I was doing well at the, in this role. I was closing deals. But now I really had to sit and think. I said, is this really what I want to do with my life? And But that's also a luxury to even have space and time. right? So I also give the balance to say, people work because they have loans. They have people to take care of. Not everybody signs up to work like dogs and horses. right? But the reality was, is that I said, hmm, I'm doing well. I was supposed to, they were supposed to open, it got create a whole other division, which would be multicultural. Yeah, everybody knows the flowery term at that time, right? That they never, they, they saw how well I was doing on general market. They never decided because they said that's small, but I said I was hired to do this. I've developed relationships. I believe in this market. And at some point I had to sit back. I'm like, it's not my company. <laughs> you know, like right. at the end of the day, I am here to serve a larger mission. I am an employee. I leave, somebody else comes. I can't be mad. It's not my company. And then I sat to sat back. I'm like, what type of company do I want? Do I want to be doing sponsorship sales? Man, I'm unsure. And at the same time, in parallel, I think, you know, didn't mention a bit, it was like in parallel, I was feeling this strong sense about what was happening in the world around relationships and loneliness, right? You know, I left Harvard at a time where Facebook was started on my campus by my classmates, right? Yeah, I was class of 2006. I'm seeing the world completely shift. My best friend was his roommate freshman year. We're all, but so I'm seeing things happening. And so I'm seeing that, okay, this is not going to work because, you know, and I need to, I need to really think about what am I really going to do? Two, I'm seeing this momentum, but I couldn't get my mind about what this could become. And I almost needed time to think. So strategically, I felt business school was like, I felt the last cover I had to have years off that I could actually learn, obviously, that would be accepted in the marketplace, but then actually pressure test what these next five to 10 years may look like, 
right? Um, you know, I, you don't really have time to do that when you have your head down to work. Um, uh, and so that for me was the second thing was because I felt some since the early age, like wanting to be called, like I was, I lived in Shanghai for a bit. I was overseas. So I said, man, I never been in California. And I, I thought about it that way. I lived in Texas. I was like, I lived in Boston. I lived, I said, I wanted to be able to get maximized my experiences while I'm young. I never lived in California. I grew up Jericho, Juice, you can't wear red. I'm scared. Ricky got shot there. You know what I'm saying? So I'm like, yo, New York, your, your Cali was scary to us East Coasters. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> you know, and so for me, it was just like, I want to live in California. There's also Silicon Valley, which again was the thing, but I was just like, I'm an entrepreneur. Wouldn't it be great for me to be out? So there's all these factors of California. I get some time to think and pressure test these ideas. Um, I get to be around amazing, smart people who can help me do that. And so that was strategic. But I, I'll say the responsive part because when business school was done, I thought I was done. I, mm -hmm. I was there at business school. Um, I started a film tech company with my, my friend. Film is, I wrote a, uh, uh, my, my essay about how film changed my life. Um, it's a wonky film, but that's all the conversation. Um, uh, but like, I'm like, man, I started with, with one of my basketball classmates. Didn't really work out after two years. Um, and then I was going to come back. But one of the things that I, when I ended up coming back east, I went back to, right? And this emerging thing was happening, right? I was hosting these dinners around the world, um, around, around uh, for initially it was New York. And then when I went to the Bay, then it was the Bay Area. And then people pop, start popping up around the country with this core thing to say, we're becoming more disconnected. We need a sense of community. I, I have this vision for this uncommon community that operates like a family, right? Like how I came up. This was inspired for me by my faith. And so, I thought business school, when I came back, this thing was growing as something volunteer. That was where I was giving all of my the money I had made in business for myself and stuff. I was pouring it into this organization. That wasn't a really formal organization, it was just a movement. It didn't have anything. Um, but then on top of that, you know, I, I saw this, I'm like, you know, God, I, I, I really believe that there's a generation of people who just like, who are becoming more disconnected and not gonna realize it until life starts to happen. And I'm seeing it happen now. Two, we're working like we've never worked before. Meaning, People worked hard before, but there was off. We are always on. On top of that, three, we're not necessarily starting families earlier. People are making decisions to put career for security. You want to do that. That's what you're taught in advance of starting families. So people are by themselves longer, even as parents are passing away. So I'm seeing these confluence of things, and they're in cities that family's not there. And I'm like, I'm, and, and seeing brothers and sisters losing them who people thought had it all together, you know, and I'm like, I think God, these, this opportunity to bring people together over a dinner table where they don't have to perform, they don't have to network, they don't have to do all, they could just show up like a family reunion. When you go home where people all know you out there, you closing the deals, you got that, you know, like, you know, the least you handle your business, but you come home, you, you somebody's child, you know, I wanted people, I felt like everybody should have that um, regardless of that. When I saw that there was a moment I, I real, I remember this, I started getting invited by churches around the, around the, they're like, how are you bringing out all these young professionals, young adults? We can't even bring them in church. And for me, it wasn't so true. It was just like caring for people through this. And so I'd do all these workshops. I'd, I'd fly wherever they take me They were, you know, and churches were continue to ask me. And then over time, I'm realized in uh, two of the occasions, after I was done doing the workshop, uh, in each of those cases, the, the church leadership would come back a couple of days later and say, have you, have you ever considered like full-time ministry because we're actually considering a new pastor and we want you to at least go through the process for it. And I'm like, wait, what? You know, like, and in my mind, I viewed the way I viewed it historically was like, I'm committed to the local church. Um, I will, I will tithe, I will serve all that. But I felt like I never fit. I felt like, no, I'm a entrepreneur, rebel that I'm not going to fit here. Right. Um, but that kept happening. And it happened the same time a year um, removed from it. And that's been the way that I feel God has spoken to me in my life. That I'm just like, man, I think I need to respond. I think I'm being called to train. I don't necessarily think it's this is the ministry, but maybe it's to help me do what I'm doing now. So that next, that next, uh, that next decision to go and get a seminary degree and do that was because I was responding to what I was seeing, right? Uh, to say, oh my gosh, I think I'm being trained up and prepared. Even though I ignored that, I said, no, I don't want to do it. I don't want to do it. It came back so many times. That I realized, you know what? I think I'm getting an invitation. And I kind of did this thing. I said, I have too many loans. If I have to pay for this, I ain't going to do it. I applied to this one place. They didn't even have a program like this. I, they, I got the admissions. I got the call from the dean. And they say, you're also a recipient of our partnership program, which was the first full tuition 
you know, um, you know, degree, think a full tuition support for a degree. And I'm like, oh man, at that point I knew who I'm like, that's God. And so I would say that it was some part strategic, but I never had any view to want to become a pastor or do anything like that. I felt it was training because I felt like God was saying, you know what? I know you don't want to, but I think for what you're doing, you need to be prepared. And so that's what kind of brought me to, to go and do that. So I think I don't want to put false precision on people like, it was just like this. I'm like, no, I had a plan. And then after that, I thought I was schooled out. And I think I got an invitation to, 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 to pursue it. You know what I find interesting about this is your first reaction being, I'm a rebel, I'm not going to fit in. And then feeling that push or that call and deciding to go and, and get a degree, right? In seminary. Um, and I say that because I find that interesting because a lot of people, particularly because they feel they are a rebel uh, and liberal, if they feel the push and the nudge, they skip all of that and go straight to ministry. Um, and, and, and I think there's a lot of conversation around the value of an MDiv or, you know, going to a theological seminary, getting the education and, and, and all of that um, versus just being called and, and jumping out there. Uh, and gone through the educational piece often feel like when someone has a very public failure as a leader, sometimes you'll hear them say, well, this is what happens when you just move in your own arrogance and you take that call and you say, I'm meant to lead without being groomed and trained, whether that training is within a formalized program or being shepherded properly. Do you think that someone can lead within ministry without going to school for it? Yeah, I, I, I... And this is a this is a really really great thing you bring up. Yes, because I also recognize that this is a privilege. I think it's only five percent of pastors worldwide get the opportunity. Right, there were times when there were many who wanted to go that could not. Right, um, and um, I don't remember there being seminaries in the New Testament. You know, there. With that said, um, you know, because I view it as a privilege, right, I don't necessarily discount. With that said, I do believe there's a humility because you could actually go to seminary and come out worse. What that means is that you can go there and you know, my hope and my prayer was not so much that I would leave there and my heart, my head would get bigger, that I would leave there and my heart would get bigger. A lot of people would go there and their, their head gets bigger, not their heart, right? And they come back and they're not, well, and even look at many of the churches that are people led by people who went to seminary. Many of these churches who are, uh, who are caught up in Trumpism here in the United States are caught up in this. I'm like, what did they miss, right? And so I say it to say that I do believe that it's, it's the posture of heart of being humble. You know, one of the things that when I moved back to um, New York, I was moving back to Jersey City, I was planning to do, my boy was in Harlem and he was starting a church plant. And this is partly where I got my hands dirty a bit because he said like, hey, you want to help out? And I'm like, I don't help out, I don't need no title. I just want to help you. You know, I believe in what you're doing, blah, blah, blah. And, you know, and, and doing that and becoming even their first community pastor even before I even did, you know, anything. You see behind the scenes, no one's quality. Anyone who's been and, and really done the work of caring for people and under shepherding, like no one's really qualified to be a pastor. Mm. But God in his grace invites us to participate in what he does, broken vessels. And when you see the weight and responsibility that is, you should always have trembling. And so what I would say is that I think it's helpful if you have a posture of humility, meaning if I go to seminary humble and saying, I'm here to learn how to love people well that the knowledge would inform how I live and love people radically and well. And then whether you were not trained, but you were willing to come under somebody's care and, and willing to learn from someone, um, I think that's important. And then if you are given the opportunity, because for me, I felt it was almost like medical training. I was like, yo, you see, there's doctors of the body, but there's also doctors of the soul. And how much more, if, that, if that's how much training that they have gone and I have the opportunity, how much more should I, when you recognize that you will all, you will eternally be uh, you'll eternally be unqualified for this eternally. For me, I just said that I personally wouldn't feel comfortable doing this work, recognizing that. And so I think to your question, I think it's more the posture of humility because recognizing that everybody has this opportunity. I do think if you're given the opportunity, you should because you don't know what you don't know. And I think those who are true students of anything, but students of the work who are disciples, always want to learn. And so if they're given an opportunity to learn, they learn and they take that into account. But to your point about the more the fails and things like, yeah, I, I find myself in balance because I have a lot of, because very few people really understand, as you know, like what really goes on to caring for people, right? Even the idea, sometimes I'm just like, you know, you can go that somebody's caring for you on call doing that. I'm not saying that's all the cases, but that there's, there's many people who would the entire time, there's almost any time this consumer's time, this entitlement 
of I'm entitled to that person's time. I'm entitled to this. And it doesn't ever cross their mind. Not outside of even a spirit, that spiritual element of it. Like, I don't contribute anything to this, <laughs> you know, but I'm demanding this. Sometimes I, you know, you know, I have, I have compassion for pastors recognizing that they're, we're all, we're all wholly unqualified. And I have compassion for parishioners as well, trying to ensure that you're under care of leadership that's humble, um, that's humble and accountable. I think it's the most important. Um, I will say this though, because of my, my path of not doing traditional ministry, I think there's the assumption because it does not look like traditional ministry. I'm not under accountability, mm. right? One of the things that leading a move, like leading the movement of our family dinner, I was, a, I'm a single Christian black man leading an or leading at that time when it came to an organization, which was 65, 70% women, right? What's sad that many brothers have to deal with in this time is the assumption of suspicion. It's very rare to see a man in that authority. There's always the assumption that you like these are these these are people to protect yourself from. This is a guy who like you know, and so I have to be very aware of that. But I think then when you even talk about you know going into the the faith realm, and now I'm trying to essentially create this kingdom like community that exists through this tradition of breaking bread and dinner, and has uh, has, has groups that connect and, and look out for each other like family. That even if within that there's a connection to kingdom vision, there is church principles, ecclesiology, that I'm under the care of a pastor, a bishop. I have a bishop who, 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 who keeps me accountable, who encourages the fact that I'm doing this in an untraditional way. But everyone from from outside in, like, they're like, oh, that's a rebel. You don't want no accountability. That's that black man. He's just going out there doing what he wants mm-hmm. with no accountability, no care. And so I think it cuts us both ways, right? Uh, uh, unfortunately, I think as brothers or sisters, when you're trying something new for the kingdom, that God has been so creative, you sometimes get limited in view that you're just, you're, you don't, you're not humble. You don't want accountability because you're not doing it the normal way. Thank you for listening to the December 26th podcast. I am your host, Delisha. This episode was produced by Demarcus Adisa and music was provided by Thovo. You can find us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at December 26th. That's December 26ER.